Oh, we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to get to the Arizona and Georgia election audits in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about another story, which is super crazy. And uh, it's sort of the continuation of what we've been discussing on this show for the past week or two. So it, it has to do with critical race theory, kind of. So there's a little known educational code law in the state of California that actually already, this is from the 1970s, it makes it a crime to indoctrinate students with communism. If teachers do this intentionally, it is literally a crime according to California state law. This is what it says. The law reads, and I quote, no teacher giving instruction in any school or on any property belonging to any agencies included in the public school system shall advocate or teach communism with the intent to indoctrinate or inculcate in the mind of any pupil a preference for communism. It goes on to say, in prohibiting the advocacy or teaching of communism with the intent of indoctrinating or inculcating a preference in the mind of any pupil for such doctrine, the legislature does not intend to prevent the teaching of the facts about communism. Rather, the legislature intends to prevent the advocacy of or the inculcation and indoctrination into communism as is hereinafter defined for the purpose of undermining patriotism for and the belief in the government of the United States and of this state. It concludes by saying for the purposes of this section, communism is a political theory that the presently existing form of government of the United States or of this state should be changed by force, violence, or other unconstitutional means to a totalitarian dictatorship which is based on the principles of communism as expounded by Marx, Lenin, and Stalin, end quote. So huge kudos, by the way, to James Lindsay for discovering this gem in the state of California in uh, their legal code. So basically what this means is that critical race theory, as you know, states across the country have been banning critical race theory from being taught in public schools or from taxpayer money funding it being taught in public schools. But I think, I think, this educational code law in California means that critical race theory being taught in public schools is already illegal in the state of California. Because as we know, critical race theory is Marxism. It's already illegal in the state of California. So a huge invitation to enter any enterprising parent, any enterprising individual standing in the state of California, if your child is being taught critical race theory, if they are being indoctrinated in Marxism, you should sue the school using this law. If not, if this doesn't make critical race theory illegal, then at least it shows us that the laws banning it in other states have precedent and are not illegal. Either way, I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. All right, before we get to the next stuff, quickly, I want to talk to you about Nutrafol. So I'm really talking to the men that are watching my show, and I'm really talking to the balding men who are watching my show, now you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. It is made of 21 potent natural ingredients that support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvements in hair growth and thickness after three and six months, respectively. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. Healthier hair growth does take time. You should know that. So you will begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair in about three to six months. So basically, you can grow thicker, healthier hair 
And you can support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is the best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. Remember, balding men, this is for you. This is your solution. Okay, San Diego a city that is near and dear to my heart. I lived in San Diego for over seven years. The San Diego Unified School District is about this close to implementing a new curriculum that incorporates and is inspired by critical race theory. So let me back up for a second. In another school district in the state of California, the Hayward Unified School District, it's up in the Bay Area uh, in California, obviously, they are spending $40 million to indoctrinate students with critical race theory. Now, For perspective here, the Hayward Unified School District is a relatively small school district. I believe it's about 20,000 students in this school district. So so when they spend $40 million on anything, that's a lot. Especially if you do the math, you can tell how much they're spending per student for this. So they're going to be indoctrinating students with critical race theory all the way down to preschool. It's not just high school, as bad as that would be. All the way down to preschool, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. If your child is in this school district, they will be brainwashed with critical race theory. In fact, this curriculum, this critical race theory curriculum is being billed as an ethnic studies curriculum. Shocker. Uh, But it is critical race theory, and they admit that it is. And it's going to become a graduation requirement from high school for all students in the next year or two. So try to tell me again that this isn't indoctrination. No one's going to believe you if you make that accusation on the left. I actually don't even understand why leftists are trying to deny critical race theory in schools if their argument is that critical race theory is just a perspective on history as told by um, people who have been oppressed or disenfranchised. If that were true, if that assertion were actually true, then there'd be nothing wrong with critical race theory, in which case the left would want to embrace it. So why isn't the left embracing it? Well, they must know that their assertion about what it is, is a lie. Anyway, the Hayward School District is going to teach their students things like ancestral legacies. This is one of the um, tenets of this curricula. Ancestral legacies of the students are going to be taught. So this obviously means shaming white kids for things that they didn't do based on the color of their skin and the color of the skin of people uh, in previous eras, hundreds of years ago in our country, who did bad things. That's what ancestral legacies mean. So if your child is a white child and they're going to the school district in Hayward School District, then they're going to be taught that they did something wrong just because they share the color of a skin of somebody who did something wrong hundreds of years ago. The curricula itself uh, reads, this discipline contends with racism, white supremacy culture, anti-blackness, anti-indigeny, a nation within nation relationships. Okay, so that's obviously woke stuff. Those are, those are the words of critical race theory. And they admit this. Uh, they say the policy and efforts to develop an ethnic studies framework are informed by and will include critical race theory and the liberated ethnic studies model curriculum. Now, liberated ethnic studies model curriculum, what is that? Um, we're going to get to that in just a second because it's funny how they always, how the left always uses euphemisms um, for the titles of what they don't want us to know what's in it. They, they essentially want to disguise the reality of the thing. Um, but the president of the school board, Dr. April Aquenda, says it's important that we teach our students of all ages about their ancestral legacies. So this curriculum goes on to say, culture is essential in the fight for racial justice, and the district believes that the promise of the full inclusion of ethnic and cultural groups who have contributed to the development of our country has not yet been realized. 
like I said, woke, woke, woke. This is just critical race theory, teaching white kids that they're bad, teaching black kids that they're oppressed. It's Marxism packaged as racialism. So going back to the liberated ethnic studies model curriculum, um, this was actually created uh, by teachings from the liberated ethnic studies model curriculum institute. So the Wall Street Journal has reported on this in the past, and this is this is what they write that one of the consultants that's affiliated with the institutes um, was hired by another school district to, I don't know, consult. What do consultants do? They give you advice and then they charge you a arm and a leg for it. Well, this particular consultant charged $1,400 an hour, an hour to teach the school district how to brainwash the kids in critical race theory and other essentially racial superiority uh, theories. So this should come as no surprise that the California's Teachers Union, just this past year in January, they endorsed this ethnic studies as part of the curriculum for schools all over the state. They actually issued a guide recommending that the curriculum, um, basically how to package the curriculum, how to describe the curriculum, and said that the curriculum intended to conceptualize, this is a quote, imagine and build new possibilities for post-imperial life that promote collective narratives of transformative resistance, critical hope, and radical healing. Literally every phrase in that little description is a Marxist-type phrase. I mean, this is what Mark Lamont Hill talks about, or sounds like, I should say, talking about reimagining society. Well, reimagining what? What's transformative resistance? What's critical hope and radical healing? Reparations? Black Lives Matter riots, looting, stores, tearing down institutions in our country to impose Marxism? That's what this sounds like. So here's my call to San Diego parents today. Do you want your kids indoctrinated with racism? Because this happened up in the Bay Area at a school district, but it's about to happen to your kids down in San Diego. This is about to be adopted by San Diego Unified School District. So do you want your kids indoctrinated with racism? Do you want your kids or anybody else's kids for that matter to be told that they are racist because of their skin color? Do you want your kids or anybody else's kids told that they are automatically born oppressed because of their skin color? Well, any thinking parent is going to say, no, we don't want that. So say no to the ethnic studies curriculum informed by critical race theory coming soon to San Diego unless you put a stop to it. Yesterday, I talked just a little bit about conservatives uh, winning certain battles in the culture war. And this is another opportunity. This is your opportunity. So do your thing, good people. Make your voices heard. Put an end to this nonsense. It actually doesn't even matter if you live in San Diego or if you have a child in the San Diego Unified School District. Make your voice heard to protect the children of San Diego. Speaking of protection, let's talk about your internet protection for a second. I want to talk about ExpressVPN with you. This is something that's very important to me because I do not like the idea of anybody seeing what I do online. Um, Well, your internet service provider can see every single website that you've visited, ever visited, and not only can they see it, they can then sell that information to advertisers um, so that they can target you based on what you have privately searched for on your computer, on your smartphone, on your iPad, whatever device you're using. I don't like that. So that's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the websites that you visit or your search history. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. All you have to do is tap one button and you are protected. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. 
That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Liz. ExpressVPN.com slash Liz to learn more. Uh, it's the right thing to do to secure the internet security of you and your family. ExpressVPN. Okay, now to get to the meat of what I want to talk about today. Um, people are actually afraid to talk about the audits in the election, the election integrity audits in Georgia and Arizona. A lot of people are afraid to talk about it, I should say, because they don't want to be painted as nuts. Well, I understand that. That's normal human nature. You don't want to be ostracized. And I think it's important to note that there's a difference between the general fishy feeling that we all got after the 2020 election. There's a difference between that versus declaring that the election was stolen immediately based on that feeling without being able to demonstrate the hard proof versus now having the tangible hard proof in our hands. This is sort of the what I would call the evolution of a narrative. And it's been hard to wait because of that fishy feeling, because of uh, individual instances of circumstantial evidence. But it's important to wait till we have tangible proof. And now it seems that we do. So by saying something like this, by presenting the facts, by looking at the reality of the thing, be ready for the most vicious backlash that you have ever experienced. Be ready for censorship. Be ready to be told that you're a conspiracy theorist. Be ready to be blamed for the so-called insurrection on January 6th. Now, all of that is nonsense, of course, but this is what it means to speak reality. It takes courage. It takes confidence. And sometimes it takes patience to wait for those facts. So here we have the facts today. Uh, by the way, anybody who has an argument to counter these facts and this evidence that I'm about to walk us through, be my guest. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me uh, on locals, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Tell me what you think. So last week, we discussed this briefly last week. Uh, the audit in Georgia showed us a video video evidence of the duplicate ballots actually being counted more than once. So this is what I mean when I differentiate between what seemed fishy and what seemed like evidence of wrongdoing versus the actual proof. So obviously, when we saw the video of those ballots being counted twice, it seemed like that was proof that something uh, shady was happening, that voter fraud might be uh, committed in that action. However, we did not see the count, the ballot count to show us that those ballots actually had been tallied more than once. Well, now we see a video and that is exactly what happened. Take a listen to this. All right, so what we're looking at here are, um, are two different batches of votes. Scanner 5162, batch 234, image 59, and scanner 5162, batch 235, image 19. And what you can see is that like on this vote right here, we've got this exact same little tail that shows on both of them. And if you don't, and if you think that maybe that's, you know, if you think that maybe that's just a, you know, a mistake or, 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 or you know, or just a coincidence, here's the next one that shows, you can see Republican. So that's one thing. We talked about that already, and it's, it's extremely significant. If you can see the evidence that a ballot has been counted more than once, that's literally the classic definition of voter fraud. That was number one in Georgia. Number two was Professor Margot Cleveland's reporting on the 35,000 voters in Georgia who changed their voting addresses in a way that could constitute um, voter fraud if they cast their ballot in a certain county. So what I mean 
Um, and I'm going I'm to read you just a tiny, tiny bit because we've talked about this previously, but we need to remember what this is, which is why I'm um, summarizing it again. This is what Professor Cleveland wrote. She goes, new evidence indicates that more than 10,300 illegal votes were cast in Georgia in the November 2020 general election. I'm going to pause reading her article for one second just to remind um, everyone the number of votes that separated Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the 2020 election in the state of Georgia, 12,670. It was this close this close, the breadth of a hair. So Professor Cleveland writes, under Georgia law, residents must vote in the county in which they reside unless they change their residence within 30 days of the election. As Jake Evans, a well-known Atlanta election lawyer, told me, outside of the 30-day grace period, if people vote in a county in which they no longer reside, their vote in that county would be illegal. So Professor Cleveland says nearly 35,000 Georgia voters who indicated they had moved from one Georgia county to another but then voted in the 2020 general election in the county from which they had moved. Now, again, pause here. It's critical whether these moves, these 35,000 people who indicated that they moved, whether these moves were temporary or permanent. Because if they're just temporary, you can still vote in that uh, county of origin, if you will. If they're permanent, you may not. And there's evidence that a significant portion of them were permanent moves. So Professor Cleveland writes, more than 10,300 had updated their voter registration information, providing the Secretary of State the exact address they had previously provided to the USPS, the change of address system that we're all familiar with. Those same 10,000 plus individuals all cast, also cast ballots in the county in which they had previously lived. By updating their address for purposes of their voter registration, these same voters are confirming their move is not temporary. When a person updates their voter registration to a new address, they're informing the County Board of Elections and correspondingly the Secretary of State that they regard the new address as their legal residence. So again, the voters themselves confirmed that they voted essentially illegally in the wrong county, and they confirmed that it was a legal move by informing the Secretary of State that they were changing their voter registration after that. Remember how many votes Biden won Georgia, 12,000. So if we already have evidence that 10,000 votes could potentially be legal, illegal, I don't see how they couldn't be based on this evidence. Plus, we have this other evidence on the video showing duplicate ballots being counted more than once. This is a really, this is a really big deal. So that's in Georgia. So pivot over to Arizona for a moment. Maricopa County audit, again, Donald Trump lost Arizona to Joe Biden by 10,457 votes. 10,457 votes. Again, the breadth of a hair. So here are the abnormalities that this Arizona, this Maricopa County um, audit has brought to the surface. Are you ready for this? 3,981 people voted in the election despite registering after the court-ordered deadline to register to vote of October 15th. So if the court said the deadline to register to vote is October 15th and voters register after that and then cast their ballot, how are those valid votes? We have to ask the question. We have to get the answer. That's number one. Number two, 11,326 people voted who were not on the voter rolls on November 7th, but were on December 4th. 
So the individuals conducting this audit, and this is a quote, um, they were testifying about this. They said, and I quote, we have also seen some interesting things related to the voter rolls. So for example, we have 11,326 people that did not show up on a November 7th version of the voter rolls and after votes were cast, but then appeared on the December 4th voter rolls. So were they registered or were they not registered? And if they were added to the voter rolls after the election, then how could, their, how could their ballots, how could their votes possibly be legal? We have to ask and we have to get an answer. That's, that's number two. Number three is 18,000 people voted and then were removed from the voter rolls after the election. Now, maybe there's a valid reason for this, but we have to ask the question and we have to get an answer to this. And then, this is, this is the biggest deal of all. That was number three. This is number four, the abnormalities from um, these audits in Arizona. 74,243 mail-in ballots were counted with no evidence of ever being sent to the voters in the first place. So again, the individual conducting the audit said, and I quote, for example, 74,243 mail-in ballots um, where there's no clear record of them being sent. And just to be clear, here in the state of Arizona, there is EB32s and EB33s. EB32s is supposed to give a record of when a mail-in ballot is sent. It's a form, right? And EB33 is supposed to give a record of when the mail-in ballot is received. So there should be an equal, there should be more EB32s, that form, more sent out than there are received. Specifically, with these, we can tie them to a specific individual it was mailed to. And so we have 74,000 where we have, it came back from individuals where we don't have a clear indication that it was ever sent out to them, end quote. All of this is obviously shady. It's not even controversial to say that. The Democrats might tell you it's controversial, but it's not. It's just numbers. This appears to be voter fraud. It appears to be significant enough to raise questions. Did it impact the final vote tally of the state? Did it impact the outcome of the election? Well, I don't know. We don't know. But we should find out because this is the hard evidence that I'm talking about. This is not just a fishy feeling. This is not just a declaration of the election being stolen based on initial evidence. These are numbers and incidents that can be tracked specifically where there's abnormalities up to and including fraud. This was an incredibly close election. In two states, by the way, they were arguably the deciding factor in the presidential election. Of course we should ask these questions. Now, by the way, if the left claims that whatever they claim, that it's violence or transphobic or an insurrection or something, if they claim any of these things um, to question voter fraud, because you know they're going to, they're going to call us every name in the book, um, if they claim that it's violence or transphobic or an insurrection to question voter fraud and the integrity of election, then we should remind them that uh, their vice president, Kamala Harris, engaged in this kind of transphobic, violent insurrection, insurrectionist questioning too in 2016. Take a listen to this. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you you know, fight against that in 2020. You are absolutely right. So again, as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, I will tell you that we should believe exactly what the intelligence community has told us, which is Russia did interfere in the election of the president of the United States in 2016. Oh, well, there you have it. So I guess there's a double standard. One, one rule for Kamala Harris, another rule for us. If we even ask the questions, if we look at data, if we're trying to sniff out voter fraud, 
because it appeared that voter fraud happened, then we're bad people. But Kamala Harris can believe lies perpetuated by the mainstream media and the Democrats and um, call into question an, an election that actually wasn't illegitimate. And it's okay if she does it. Well, just so we're clear on the standards here, good thing we don't play by the left's rules on uh, my show. I will never play by the left's rules. I reject them. Um, Okay, speaking of the truth, do you know whose voice I always hear in my house almost nonstop? And especially, by the way, early in the morning. My husband typically wakes up a little bit earlier than me. I hear Spencer Clavin's voice narrating my husband's breakfast uh, or narrating while my husband's cooking and eating his breakfast. My husband is addicted to Spencer's podcast, Young Heretics. Um, It's a great podcast. Spencer's voice is rich and melodious. His vocabulary is impressive. And what I like the best, of course, is his grasp of philosophy and how ancient philosophy applies to modern the modern world. Young Heretics is produced by Soundfront, same guys who produce my podcast and also produce Verdict with Ted Cruz. So please subscribe to Young Heretics at youngheretics.com and tell Spencer I said hi. Okay, I tweeted this the other day and I thought it was a really good tweet. I said, voter fraud is not racist. Um, neither is banning ballot harvesting, um, anything of the kind, period. It's, it's simply not racist. There's no evidence for that. It's an empty threat, an empty allegation levied by the left because they know they don't have any other argument for banning voter ID. Voter ID is um, something that's widely accepted by the American public, including the Democrat electorate. Most people support it. Um, So this is my opinion on the matter. And my opinion is based on facts. The facts show that voter fraud is not only not racist, it actually increases voter turnout. But there's a new study that was recently released called Strict ID Laws Don't Stop Voters, Evidence from a U.S. Nationwide Panel, 2008 to 2018. The reason that I want to talk about this study today is uh, not just because of the conclusion that it's drawn, but because it's almost even better because this study is not pro-voter ID. This is not a think tank on the right who conducted this with perhaps preconceived notions about what they want their policy, uh, the policy agenda to be. No, no. This study actually admits that they're against voter ID. They don't think that it's an effective effective deterrent on fraud. And I I personally love using... um, Democrat or progressive or at least non-conservative sources to undermine the Democrats' own argument. It's like it's like playing an away game. Nothing's better than beating someone on their own home field. Um, so that's what this that's what this study does. They say U.S. states increasingly require identification to vote, an ostensive attempt to deter fraud that prompts complaints of selective disenfranchisement. Using a difference in difference design on a 1.6 billion observations panel data set. 2008 to 2018, we find that the laws have no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any group defined by race, gender, age, or party affiliation, end quote. There you have it. There you have it. So back to my tweet, there's nothing racist about voter ID or banning ballot harvesting or prohibiting unsolicited mail-in voting applications, period, period. Um, their own study says so themselves. So how do you argue with that? The only argument is, of course, they don't want voter ID because, I don't know, they want fraud. There's literally no other reason not to want voter ID. It's a dumb argument from the left. And I think that they know that they're losing this argument. Um, Another argument that the left would have lost if U.S. voters were afforded the right to this information that we certainly deserved. So a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, 
delayed a probe into Hunter Biden's wrongdoings, allegations of criminal behavior, delayed it until after the election because this prosecutor didn't want um, the results of this probe to impact the election. And I think this is wildly unfair to the U.S. voter. These people working in the Department of Justice forget that they work for us. They do not get to tell us what information we need before we cast our vote. No, their job is to stop crime, period. It's not to make sure we're informed or not informed the way they want us to be. So this is what happened. This was a report from The Federalist that said, U.S. Department of Justice officials deliberately delayed an investigation into Hunter Biden's potential tax law violations and sketchy overseas business dealings because of the effect it could have on the presidential election, according to a political report. The Federalist continues, Delaware's U.S. Attorney David Weiss allegedly postponed allowing prosecutors to obtain search warrants and issue grand jury subpoenas last summer after facing pressure from other officials who feared the investigation's influence on the 2020 presidential election and now President Joe Biden's campaign. Weiss first assumed, oh, this is critical, by the way. This is really critical. Weiss first assumed his position as U.S. Attorney in 2017 after former President Donald Trump nominated him. We'll get to why that's important in a second. As noted by Politico, the nomination was based on the recommendation of Delaware's two Democratic senators who both praised the choice. The attorney has deep ties, previously engaging and even leading a long list of investigation in President Biden's home state of Delaware and on the national level, even connected to the infamous Ukrainian energy firm Burisma with which Hunter Biden was involved. Shortly after his nomination, Weiss began to explore Hunter's roguish business dealings with Chinese businessmen possibly linked to the communist regime. The probe originally focused on possible money laundering and violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but later shifted to questioning whether Hunter had paid taxes on all of his income. The Federalist says, when the time came for more formal exploratory measures into Hunter's dealings, however, Weiss declined to take any drastic actions that were likely to make the existence of the Hunter Biden probe public because he feared political scrutiny and giving many of then-President Donald Trump supporters what they were looking for. Shortly before Election Day, the Federalist concludes, prosecutors and then Attorney General Bill Barr worked together to keep the investigation from going fully public and decided not to appoint a special investigator for the case. This is a really big deal. This, I mean, this is an absolute outrage, and I do not say that lightly. This is an example of a two-tier system of justice. Because Hunter Biden's wrongdoing does impact the presidency. Duh. If his dad is the president. If his dad is the president and Hunter Biden has used his father's public, uh, his position in public office when Joe Biden was vice president to gain connections to these shady business deals in China and in the Ukraine and then profited off of that, not only is it incredible vulnerability to blackmail, it's probably pay to play. Voters should have the right to know this. Government officials should not be the gatekeepers of what information they think that we should use to inform our voting decisions. In fact, if they thought that it might impact the election, that's all the more reason voters had a right to know this. And by the way, going back to the fact that uh, this prosecutor, David Weiss, was appointed under the Trump administration, what does this tell me? What does this show me? This shows the deep state. This shows the administrative state. This shows the need for Congress to legislate an end to the administrative state, for the Senate to grill judicial nominees 
on their separation of powers doctrine to make sure that the executive or that the legislative branch is not deferring their legislative duty to these executive agencies. We will never get rid of the swamp creatures that think they know better than us, that try to keep information from us, that try to unseat a duly elected president unless we abolish the administrative state. This will keep happening. They will treat you like you're stupid. They will let Democrats off the hook and they will protect Democrat politicians. Protect them. Can you imagine the highest form of the government? Awful. Fortunately, not all government officials, not all members of the judiciary are as awful. A federal judge has recently ruled that Barack Obama's DACA Delayed Action for Childhood Arrivals program, you might remember, know them as the Dreamers, is unlawful. Yeah, no kidding. So federal judge Andrew S. Hannon, he's uh, on the U.S. District Court in Houston. He was actually appointed by George W. Bush, believe it or not. He ruled just this past week that uh, DACA is unlawful, that Obama exceeded his executive authority by issuing it. Again, no kidding. No kidding. We've just been saying this for the past, well, literally since this executive order was issued. Um, So the judge said in his ruling that specifically what Obama violated with his executive order is the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, something, by the way, that the Obama administration violated um, more than once. They did not allow the public to comment on this. So DACA is never legal, has never been legal, never gained legal status, according to this judge. Um, This is ironic, I think, that this federal judge is overturning DACA now under Biden because when President Trump was in office and he tried to overturn DACA with an executive order, um, he was told by a federal judge in Brooklyn that it was illegal for him to end the program. I never understood that because if the executive order was illegal, and it was, every legal scholar, regardless of whether you like the policy in and of itself, and if you like the policy, you can legislate it, but you can't just you can't just issue a dictate, an executive order, and do this. Um, Regardless of what you think about this order, if an executive order is illegal, then a president, not then the next president, for example, not only has the right to overturn this, don't they have the duty to overturn it? Because their first and foremost responsibility is to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And if an executive order violates the Constitution of the United States, and it's within the power of the president to rescind that, to restore constitutional order, don't they have a moral duty to do so? I don't know. Apparently that argument was lost on the Democrats. The Democrats' argument, their quote-unquote moral argument, is that to rescind DACA would be cruel because these children were brought to our country when they were children through no fault of their own. This is the only country that they've ever known growing up. And if their legal status is rescinded, they really have nowhere to go back to because they never had established themselves in the previous country. And I actually, this may surprise you, but I actually don't think that that is an argument without merit because these children were brought to the United States through no fault of their own, even if it was illegally, by their parents. Their parents did this to them. So why does none of the responsibility for the situation that these, they're not even children anymore, by the way, most of them are in their 20s and 30s, but why does none of the responsibility fall on the parents who put the children in this terrible situation? Or moreover, why doesn't the blame fall on Obama, Barack Obama, who issued this executive order knowing the horrible situation that he was going to put these these DACA kids in? 
Because again, he's not stupid. He thought he could get away with exceeding his executive authority, and he did for a little bit. But he knew that it wasn't legal to do the to do that. He even admitted it himself after DAPA, which was the um, which was the one about the parents. After that was rescinded, he essentially said, "Well, the same thing's going to happen to DACA." So why does none of the responsibility for this awful situation that these kids are in? No one's denying that. Why does none of the responsibility fall on their parents? Or on Obama, who just made, who just um, ingrained this irresponsible decision of the parents into our society. But you'll notice, of course, that the left, as they're arguing in favor of DACA, never put any of the responsibility where it ought to lie. They only want to demonize Republicans. They only want to call conservatives uncompassionate. They never want to talk about the fact that obviously DACA exceeded the executive authority of Obama, the chief executive cannot just declare a whole demographic of people to be legal the way that he did. Democrats are not interested, by the way, in what the proper compromise should be here. So the proper compromise should be shut off the flow of illegal immigration from our southern border and from visa overstays, shut it down completely. Shut down completely the flow of illegal immigration. Then, once we have actually stopped the flow, then perhaps for law-abiding dreamers, and that's a very key phrase, law-abiding, because not all of them are, for the law-abiding dreamers who were brought here through no fault of their own by their parents, exacerbated by DACA under Obama, perhaps they can be given legal status, though, not citizenship to our country, but only, only if the flow of illegal immigration is cut off first. If the Democrats were negotiating in good faith, if they truly cared about these kids, then they would be open to a compromise like that, and they would actually work to stop the flow of illegal immigration across our southern border and through our uh, visa program. But they're not operating in in good faith, and they do not care about these children because they won't even entertain that idea. Okay, it seems to me that every day I see headlines about um, high-powered politicians talking about the COVID vaccine, and I almost don't believe the headlines at first because they're so nutty. These people say such nutty, nutty things that I think it's clickbait or I think it's misrepresented. And then I go and I watch the video or I go and I look at the exact quote from the politician or the individual, and I just stop and think, wow, this is where we are in our country. These people are actually advocating for authoritarianism, essentially totalitarian mandates and Uh, Just crazy, crazy stuff. In this case, I'm talking about Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services, well, former secretary, obviously, um, and what she said about unvaccinated American adults. This is what she said. Take a listen. I think that it's time to say to those folks, it's fine if you don't choose to get vaccinated, you may not come to work. You may not have access to a situation where you're going to put my grandchildren in jeopardy, where you might kill them, where you might put them in a situation where they're going to carry the vet, the virus to someone in a high-risk position. That's, I think, the point where we are is freedom is one thing, but freedom when you harm others like secondhand smoke and um, issues that we've dealt with very clearly in the past. You can't drive drunk, you can drink, but you can't drive drunk because you can injure other people. You can't smoke inside of a public place where you can give cancer to someone else in spite of their never having been a smoker. So 
I think we're reaching that point in the United States where those of us who are vaccinated, I want to take off my mask. I want to be able to live my life with vaccination. And right yeah. now I'm being impinged on by people who say, I don't want to get vaccinated. It's fine, but I want them to maybe have a limitation on where they can go and who they can possibly infect. So it's a stupid analogy, very stupid analogy um, to compare secondhand smoke or drunk driving. And here's why, because both of those situations are passive in a sense. You can't do X, Y, Z under the influence, or you can't do X, Y, Z in this particular area. That's very different from um, vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates are more active because they restrict your right if you don't get injected. What I mean is you're basically committing an offense if you are, say, just rocking on your own porch just by virtue of omission, by not getting a vaccine, versus in the other examples, the other activities or risky activities that you're choosing to engage in. And once you've chosen to engage in the activity, your secondary action is what's restricted. Nothing is being forced upon you. You're not committing a crime simply by sitting there. You might recognize this same kind of argument because this is a, uh, the same kind of argument that was made around the Obamacare mandate, that if you just sat in your own home, minding your own business, did nothing, you would actually be penalized for not taking an action, for not purchasing health insurance up to the standard mandated by Obamacare right? So she knows, by the way, that this is a stupid comparison. The secretary knows that her grandchildren are not going to be killed by COVID-19. And here's what I actually think about leftists and COVID. And it became very evident to me just in the past week and a half when we saw the Cuban people rise up against communism, uh, against the communist dictatorship in Cuba, I should say. And leftists had a very, very hard time condemning communism by name. They had to be pressured into it. And even if they actually did condemn it, they made sure to take a little jab at the United States while they were at it. So here's what I think. I think that the leftists refused to or were begrudgingly condemned Cuban communism because I think leftists are actually jealous of authoritarianism. Case in point is this video that we just watched, Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary Sebelius saying that unvaccinated people should not be allowed to go to work or allowed to get near kids. These leftists, like her, I believe they wish they had the power to control you just like the communist dictatorship in Cuba. Oh, this is so funny. By the way, the dumbest thing that I've seen online this week, I didn't know whether to laugh. I did laugh, to be honest. I did laugh when I saw this. I actually thought it was a meme. I thought it was a joke at first. Um, come to find out that it is a real thing. Um, iPhone is set to release new emojis um, for your phone, obviously. Um, for your texting, and this, show it on the screen, please. This is what the newest emoji is going to be. For those of you listening to this, it is a pregnant man. A pregnant man. Mustache, a big mustache, a big, you know, Tom Selleck mustache is what we'll call it to be nice, um, on this man. And, you know, in a sense, th this is what I tweeted about it. Because like I said, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was just a meme. I didn't think it was real. I said, I'm glad iPhone is finally recognizing the obesity crisis in our nation to show this fat man with a pot belly. Um, the obesity crisis in our nation, that's the actual root cause of most COVID fatality in young people. Oh, wait, 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 wait. This is a pregnant man. Obviously, it's insane. So um, that's how I plan to use this emoji. I plan to use it. I plan to hijack it. I want to compromise the left's narrative. I am going to make this emoji, this pregnant man, 
represents uh, my response. I'm going to make this emoji represent what we know the reality is, that it's objectively impossible and insane for them to try to make this a thing. So instead of saying that's insane, I'm going to send this emoji. I encourage you to do the same. Um, Okay, I do not want to, we talked about this yesterday, I do not want to be part of Jen Psaki's big communist crackdown on social media since Jen Psaki defines disinformation as anything Joe Biden or Kamala Harris don't like you to say about COVID. Thank God for locals because these next stories are, um, you need to hear about them. You need to hear about them and you can join us on lizwheelershow.com slash locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community on locals um, to hear about it. It's pretty crazy stuff. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. The great and powerful Jay Hay says we're out of time, although we have a lot more to talk about tomorrow. So in the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and don't let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating over there. Write us a review. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler senior publicist, Patricia Jackson, and production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.